In the providence of the Lord, I have recently been able to get to know a true baseball man. One whose passion for the game is contagious. Today, you'll have the privilege of hearing from him. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! Are you familiar with Middlesex College? It's in New Jersey. The athletic director there is a man by the name of Rocco Constantino. I tell you this because it's one of the few aspects of his work and passion that we didn't talk about. But boy, did we talk baseball. And you do not want to miss what Rocco has to say. Rocco, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Mark. It's really an honor to be uh, be here talking baseball with you. I love your podcast, and uh, it's uh, awesome to be a guest here. Great. Now, we first communicated, and I don't remember how it started. I don't know if you texted me or what, but last summer during the season, because you do an article every Friday on Ball 9 called Spitballing, and I think you're past 150 former major leaguers that you interviewed. That's how we first got to know one another. You were kind enough to do an article uh, interviewing me. And then since then, we've kind of gone back and forth because of our mutual love for the game as well as some of the things we see going on that maybe we don't love quite so much. I want to talk about all of that. Ball nine, spitballing, the game, where it is, what you think about 2024. But I want to start the way you start at least all of the articles that I have read, which is always saying to the player, tell me about growing up. Tell me about your childhood, the game of baseball. Tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are now. Uh, thanks, Mark. Yeah, I, uh, that's the way I always start my interviews off because I always love hearing that story of when baseball, when that love of baseball is born within the, a person, especially somebody who goes on to be one of the very few major leaguers. Uh, for myself, baseball, I, I still have the ball, actually. When I was born, my uh, uncle got a baseball, brought it to the hospital, had all my relatives sign it. So I say I, I had a baseball from the day I was born, uh, and I still have it with me. Um, and then I developed that love because my family's always been a huge baseball family. Um, my, my great grandfather came to this country from Italy, um, in the late 1800s. Um, and his son, my grandfather was a big baseball player. I actually have a framed picture of him in my office, uh, from 1919 of him up there with the old school baseball bat and he's in his stance and he's ready to take a swing. Um, it's just a great picture that survived in our family that whole time. Uh, and then growing up, my dad, uh, and he had a twin brother. Uh, they were born in the 1930s. They, they long passed away, uh, but they loved baseball. So I grew up hearing stories about Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio and, you know, Willie Mays, Sandy Koufax. I mean, everybody through the forties on, until the, uh, the nineties really, um, and then their sister, believe it or not, was a huge baseball player as well. She was in the uh, U.S. Air Force and played on the women's baseball team 
Um, and she, we have an article written about her from 1950 um, featuring her as this, you know, women, women's baseball playing Marvel, um, where she actually turned down a, a, an offer to play in Max Carey's All-American Girls Professional Baseball League because she didn't want to wear a skirt. Um, <laughs> and again, this is an article that's been in our family for 70 years. We still have it. And it's great. So I, I was born with baseball. I started playing as a kid, um, you know, T-ball all the way through Little League and high school. I uh, went to college with the intentions of playing. Uh, but then I kind of veered off into, uh, you know, just playing in adult leagues and things like that and, and going on with my academics. But it's always been a, a love of mine on, on both sides of my family. My, my mother's side of the family is all baseball nuts, too. Mm-hmm. Um, her father, my grandfather, was at Babe Ruth Day in Yankee Stadium, 1947. Um, and we still have the program with his score keeping in it and the ticket um, from that game. So like I said, my mom always talked about going to see the Mets um, and going to the polo grounds and going to Ebbets Field with her father. So I, I had no choice but to love baseball. I guess not. That is quite a, a background, quite a, an ongoing legacy within both sides of your family. Now, if I understand correctly, you grew up and most of your life has been in the New Jersey area. Is that correct? Yeah, aside from four or five years I lived in Santa Barbara, I've been in New Jersey my whole life. So, who did you grow up rooting for? And maybe it's still the team you root for. So, I I started off a Reggie Jackson fan. 1981 is the first season I can remember. I loved Reggie Jackson. I loved the Yankees. Um, My uncle grabbed me... uh, in around 1984, my mother's brother, Uncle Ray, I was at his, his house last night for the Super Bowl. So about 40 years ago, he grabbed me and said, you're not a Yankee fan, you're a Mets fan. Let's go to Shea Stadium. <laughs> and uh, he, so he, he took us all to Shea Stadium all the time every summer. That was, you know, Doc and Daryl and all those guys. So I, I came in right at the right time. So I'm a, I'm a 40-year Mets fan. Okay. Well, very good. Because as you know, I played for the Mets. So I'm glad that you chose that side of uh, – of New York. Now I brought it up as we started. I want, I want you to talk about both for my sake, because I know some things about it, but I want to learn more. So ball nine and spitballing spitballing is an article that you publish every Friday where you interview a former major league player. Ball nine is something that you and a man named Chris Vitale started. What is it? How did it get started? Why did it get started? That's great. Believe it or not, Chris and I go back, and we like to probably share this story more often than, than usual, but we were Little League teammates together growing up in Belleville, New Jersey. Um, I was a pitcher. He was a catcher. Uh, we were Little League champions in 1986, the Indians. Uh, so we've always had this friendship. Uh, we graduated high school together. Um, and I mentioned I lived out in Santa Barbara. Well, right about the same time I moved there, he moved to Los Angeles. Um, and we, you know, always talk baseball and we have that love. Um, and I had been a writer. I was working on my second book had already published my first. Um, but we were at an event, we were at an event in Anaheim in Angel Stadium. Um, and it was a benefit event for former major league players, um, through the APBPA. Um, and we went to this event and we had the greatest time. We literally, we didn't know anybody there other than, oh, look, hey, there's Rod Carew, you know, and say, <laughs> oh, there's Bobby Gritch and there's people. You know, there's Jerry Royce, six forward. Um, so we sit down at this table and start looking around. We didn't know anybody. We're, and the guy next to us puts his hand down and introduces himself. It's Dennis Lamp, um, the old pitcher. Then they go around the table and 
Tony Musers at our table and Tom Gamboa. And so these guys had all these great baseball stories. Um, and then you look around at all the other tables and there were, you know, former players, like I said, um, at all these different tables. And they got up and told story after story, um, funny and sad and touching and, and heartwarming. And, and just anybody who spoke, whether it was Rod Carew, a Hall of Famer, one of the greats of all time, um, or, you know, somebody else who, who had a, a shorter career. Every single person had a great story. So we left that event saying, we need to do something to give a platform to these former baseball players and former athletes to tell their stories. We, you know, we loved it. We were laughing. We went through all the emotions of it. Um, so that was our goal. And, you know, and then Chris went, and we always have the crazy ideas, but then I give Chris a ton of credit because he really followed through with it. Um, and he invested a lot of time and money and effort. And he said, I have a vision for a baseball multimedia website or company. Um, and that was Ball Nine. So we do articles, podcasts. We did a little music stuff. We did a lot of stuff about baseball art. Uh, we've had a lot of different writers and contributors. Um, so that that's kind of, and we're going on our fifth year of it, which is um, is great. And we've just been able to tell so many stories. So that's kind of how Ball Nine um, got started and got off the ground. Um, and then you mentioned spitballing as well. Uh, my, my main responsibility on the site is every Friday I interview a former major leaguer or sometimes former manager or umpire or, or relative of a baseball player and just let them tell their stories. Uh, their, their stories are all amazing and, and it's become really popular and uh, I'm getting close to, we're almost up to 200 now, the uh, 200 editions and 200 former players that we've been able to tell, uh, allow to tell their stories. And I've interviewed guys that played all the way back as far as the 1940s all the way up through the 2020s. So you get, you know, eight decades worth of stories for players. And it's, it's gone beyond my wildest dreams on, on how successful it's been. Now, I access both Ball 9 and Spitballing on X. Are there other places to do so? That's where I get it. But if somebody was not on X, is there another place that they could go to that? Yeah, we uh, Ball 9 has a Facebook page. If you just search Ball 9, uh, that's simple. It goes out and... Uh, and just on the website as well, ball9.com. Uh, and then Ball9, we have a, um, a YouTube channel too, and we're hoping to concentrate a little bit more this year on some video podcasts and podcasts as well. Uh, right now we're doing a new podcast called Southpaw. It's Chris and I, along with um, former lefty pitchers, Glendon Rush, Will Oman, Bill Pulsifer, and Wayne Franklin. So uh, it's Chris and I and then four crazy lefties uh, <laughs> who all share the same type of love of baseball and same ideas that, that you and I do. Uh, and we just have fun with it and talk baseball, and um, it, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. So that, that's one thing we're looking forward to this year is the, uh, the Southpaw episode. Now, are either you or Chris left-handed? Not, not at all. <laughs> you guys, you guys got some guts to do something with four left-handed pitchers. I'll just say that right off the, right off the get-go. All right, here's a question, and you can't answer me because if you do, everybody's going to know you're lying, and then you've blown all credibility. In all of the interviews that you have done for spitballing, what was the most enjoyable interview that you were able to engage in? Enjoyable, um, I. I had an hour and a half phone conversation with Louis Tiant. Uh, that probably comes to mind as, as right off the bat because that's a guy that you talk about. I mean, 
incredible knowledge of baseball and just an amazing story of, of leaving Cuba to go to Mexico and then the U.S. and, and all the political strife um, that had been there. Uh, and, and he's so open and so honest. So, you know, talking about leaving his home and thinking that that was the last time he was ever going to see his parents um, and what it was like in Cuba, uh, you know, what it meant for his parents to eventually come to the United States. Um, and then even tell me the story of his parents got to see him pitch um, and then both passed away within a few days of each other, not, not mm-hmm. too long after that. Um, and sharing those stories and sharing some honest thoughts about his Hall of Fame candidacy and, and hoping that this is his year. Um, and, and this whole time he's talking to me and telling me these stories and I'm sitting there going, just on the phone with Louis Tiant. Like, <laughs> you know, like I'm talking to one of my friends and I'm, yeah. I'm sitting here talking to Louis. That, that was really memorable. Um, another Red Sox, Fred Lynn, I really enjoyed um, talking with him. Another guy, just uh, fantastic and generous with his time. Very honest. Um, and funny, uh, funny stories and, you know, very opinionated too. So it was, that was really cool to, um, you know, to talk with him. Um, but then I also really like, um, I've gotten to talk to, like I mentioned, some guys that played in the forties and fifties. Um, and to me, that kind of almost reminds me of conversations I had with my dad. Um, like I mentioned, you know, that, that was the era my dad grew up watching. So I spoke to Al Worthington, who's, you know, mid nineties, mid to upper nineties, he was in uniform for the catch for Willie Mays catch. He's on the job. I mean, to me, to be able to sit there and ask somebody, Hey, what was it like sitting there on the, in the bullpen and watching Willie Mays make that catch, Uh, you know, a catch that I heard my father and my uncle talk about a million times growing up to be able to sit there and ask somebody about that, what it was like being there was, is just unbelievable. Um, And then there's a few other, you know, older players like that. Uh, Larry Miggins, who just passed away. Um, he was the third baseman for the Jersey City Giants uh, in Jackie Robinson's first ever professional game, his first ever minor league game. Uh, he was the last surviving member. A fellow named Bob Kelly, who played for Roger Hornsby. Roger Hornsby was this guy's man. I mean, I just can't imagine that. Yes. You could sit there, there's somebody still alive, and hey, what was it like having Roger Hornsby as a oh. manager? And, Right, just wild, wild stuff. That is awesome. Now, I'm going to assume, I did read the Fred Lynn article. I've not yet read the Louis Tian article, but I've got a great story. I'm assuming he was humble, and here's why. When I was playing for the Pirates, back when you had roommates, back when, if you were going to receive a phone call, it came through the hotel phone next, you know, between the two beds, I was rooming with Ravello Manzanillo. And a phone rings. I pick it up. Somebody says, can I speak with Ravello, please? I said, well, he's not here right now. And he said, this is Louis Tion. I used to play baseball. And I'm like, yeah, I know who you are. But, <laughs> you know, he, he was acting like I wouldn't know who he was. I'm thinking, yeah, I, don't worry. I, I definitely know who you are. Um, all right. Along the lines, what would be something that comes to mind that you learned through an interview that really surprised you? kind of caught you off guard or just something you didn't anticipate? Um, I, you know, I, I, I was just talking about this. I would say maybe, it's not maybe from one interview, but across many interviews, um, the universal love of Billy Martin. I, anybody that played for him along the lines, and I've interviewed a bunch, I, you know, you'd expect to get the mixed answers like, yeah, I played for him or yeah, I played for him in 
he really wasn't for me. But I mean, to a man, I think everybody, and they may not have known that at the time, but um, at this point, they all appreciate and, and were honored to play for Billy Martin. Uh, and they all say the same thing. He had his methods and he could tick you off, but uh, they would have run through a wall for him. Um, I, you never hear a bad word about Billy Martin. Um, and that that's not that, again, not that he's, you know, you're expecting to hear bad things, but you're kind of expecting maybe a tepid response. Um, but it's just, it's been universal love. And that that's a guy that I grew up watching manage, you know, the Yankees four or five different times. Yeah. Um, so that, that's been a lot of – that's been eye-opening. Um, and one thing I've learned, too, um, and I've kind of dove into this topic, um, I've interviewed a bunch of former players who are, aren't in the MLB pension system. Um, they get a stipend from the MLBPA. It's a small stipend on a scale. Um, they did get a raise on the last um, collective bargaining agreement. Um, but there's a group of players. It's a complex story to get into. Um, but – I've now interviewed about 10 or 15 players who just, they're not, they didn't qualify for that pension system. They got left behind. Um, they've been fighting for years and they don't want a lot. They're just asking um, to be matched um, as a $10,000 annual stipend, which is what major league baseball gave to um, Negro league players um, who missed out on their pensions. So they're just kind of looking at, to do that. And, they, and they're, they've been fighting with major league baseball for, a few decades now. So I, I didn't know much about that at first, but I've learned a lot and you learn those personal stories. I'm um, talking to those guys. Well, I want to thank you for taking on their cause because it's a worthy one. Hopefully at some point in time, that's going to get taken care of. So I appreciate that Rocco. Final question about spitballing, at least for now of anybody that you have not yet interviewed, who is your number one? I want to get this guy as an interview for spitballing. Well, I have the unreasonable guys like Sandy Koufax and Willie Mays, and, and you know that that's probably not happening. And um, you know the the guys that I grew up loving and watching, you know George Brett, Ricky Henderson, those top top notch players would be really cool to interview. But realistically, um, there are guys like uh, you know that weren't necessarily Hall of Famers, but guys that I loved watching growing up as a kid. Yeah, I mean as a kid, but even as an adult too. I, I think of like. Um, John Olrood, Mike Piazza, a Hall of Famer, of course, but um, these are some of my favorite guys. Uh, believe it or not, Kevin Elster. Um, again, not superstars, but guys I just like to talk to and, and hear their stories would be great. Um, and you can see all these where this is going with all the Mets, but uh, I was always a Greg Jeffries guy. Um, Sid Fernandez is awesome, too. I, I've seen some interviews with him. He's a nice guy. So those are some. I also have this grand idea. Uh, my 200th spitball and was coming up. Uh, it would have been cool to uh, interview Mario Mendoza, get over the Mendoza <laughs> line for uh, my 200th spitball. And uh, I believe I found him coaching baseball in Mexico, but I don't know that I've, I'm able to get in touch with him. But uh, that's uh, I still got a few weeks to try to work that out. Very nice. Well, I look forward to seeing what's coming up during this season. Um, before we get to baseball, broadly speaking. One of the things I didn't know until I was doing some research for interviewing you is you have written two books. The names of both of them are intriguing. If I got this right, <clears throat> excuse me, one is 50 Moments That Defined Major League Baseball, and the other is Beyond Baseball's Color Barrier. Like I said, both of those titles are intriguing to me. 
Can you tell us a little bit about both of those books? Yeah, uh, my first book, and they're both published through through Roman and Littlefield Publisher. Um, my first book, Beyond Baseball's Color, I'm sorry, uh, 50 Moments That Define Major League Baseball, uh, was published in 2016. And I mentioned my parents, uh, my dad. My dad ran a business with his twin brother, the Duke, we called him. Then uh, they were the two baseball nuts, and they sat, it was a video business. And they worked from home. They would come, my uncle would come to my house every night. We'd put the Yankees on, the Mets on, flip to the Braves and Cubs, you know, on the uh, WGN and TNT. And no matter who came up and whatever game it was, my uncle and father had some kind of story about it. Or you'd hear Ralph Kiner would mention, you know, Stan Musial. And then you go back and, and my uncle would have all these stories. So my thought with 50 moments at the fine Major League Baseball was just pick out 50 games um, from 1900 forward and write about the games, write about the backstory, write about the impact um, that they had on baseball history, and maybe interview some people who were connected with the game. So it's a book, I say it's easy reading, but it's something that um, you can maybe give to a teenager who wants to learn a little bit about baseball history. Um, you know, a father has a son or a daughter who's getting to that age where they, you know, get, are learning and reading about history, and they could read about in one shot, you know, you read about Derek Jeter and George Brett and Christy Mathewson and Jackie Robinson and uh, Hank Aaron and, and through the highlights of one of their games um, or even Pete Rose. So, you know, there's uh, all these different highlights and, and there, there are highlights, lowlights. There's um, tragedies. I wrote about the day that Daryl Kyle uh, passed away and, and what that was like. Um, wrote about Ray Chapman. Um you know, being hit in the head in that game. Um, Pete Reeser, another guy from the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, who um, was really, you know, an underrated guy. Um, and then also, like I said, the Pintar game, Hank Aaron's 714th homer, um, you know, the one where he tied Babe Ruth, um, or I'm sorry, beat Babe Ruth, and, um, and stuff like that. So that's fun. I think the interesting part of that is there's 50 former major leaguers that um, – I interviewed for it and you get their insight as well. Um, and, you know, so, so example, you know, the, the pine tar game, um, I wrote about the game itself, all the background and everything. And I interviewed Don Slott, who was the mm -hmm. catcher. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily, you know, you always hear what George Brett has to say. You always <laughs> hear what Greg Nettles has to say about it, but what do the other people want to say about it? And then I also interviewed like Jeff Montgomery to ask him what it was like being teammates with George Brett and stuff like that. So I uh, kind of try to get different perspectives on that. stuff. Great. And then how about beyond baseball's color barrier? Yeah, that, that one, uh, I'm proud of that book. Um, that simply put, I wanted to write a historical um, timeline of African-Americans in major league baseball. So we go all the way back to before the color line was even drawn. Um, and to this player named Will, Will, Will White, who, uh, Willie White, who wasn't even discovered that he was one quarter African American until over 130 years after he retired. Um, so they've been able to trace back to him that he was the first person to have any kind of African American heritage to play Major League Baseball. He only played one game, so he was almost lost to history. But we start with him and then go into Moses Fleetwood Walker and his brother, Weldy, um, then how the color line was drawn, um, efforts made to erode it, 
and then finally when Jackie Robinson breaks through and how that kind of expanded baseball that way. Um, and it's not so much more, you know, a social commentary type of thing. It's more historical. So it's, it's yeah, there's the, the social aspect of it, but it's also, you know, you, you look at, at the historical players, the Hank Aarons, the, um, the Jackie Robinsons, the uh, Larry Doby, Frank Robinson, I mean, all those people. Um, and then there's also the fun aspect of it, too. I like one of my favorite chapters is the 70s and how, you know, you have the 60s and, and everybody, you know, crew cuts and, and tight dress and no facial hair and no personality type of stuff. And then all of a sudden the 70s come and you have, you know, Reggie Jackson and Dick Allen and Mickey Rivers and, and you know, Herb Washington, Oscar Gamble and all these, these great personalities. And it really, you know, kind of brought, brought the game to life is what I say. Um, and then just kind of take a look at, at the great accomplishments of, of African-Americans really, like I said, from the 1880s all the way through today. Um, and we do get into a little bit of how the game has changed, um, how um, African-American participation has been uh, has decreased significantly, um, and, and the effects of that, you know, socioeconomically on, on the game and how difficult it is. You know, you used to be able to find uh, players in the inner cities, white or black or Hispanic or anybody, um, you can go to a sandlot and they're all playing together. Um, and now it's not so much. It's kind of become that country club sport. So it gets into that aspect too. That sounds fascinating. So again, if people want to buy it, and I know I do, I'm assuming something like Amazon, but where can you get either one or both of these books? Yeah, they're both on Amazon. You can search my name, um, Rocco Constantino, or um, they're available through Barnes & Noble or through Roman Littlefield directly as well. Very good. I could stop right here and just go back. I just I love your enthusiasm, your passion, your knowledge of baseball history. We could talk about the past all night long, but we're coming up on the start of the 2024 baseball season. So I want to start by asking what you are looking forward to in this season or maybe some of the storylines that you hope to follow. I want to start there, and then I want to talk a little bit just about where the game is, where you think it might be going, and your view on on all of that. So let's start with 2024. Anything jumping out at you as far as something you're excited about, a storyline you're you're hoping to see unfold, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about the Dodgers. And I, I like what you said on, on one of your previous episodes with, you know, you were excited at what they've done this offseason and think it would be good for the game. Um, and it's going to be how good can they be with that? I mean, that – I don't know that I've seen a roster that talented, um, you know, going back, you think, I guess the, the mid to, or the, you know, the mid to late nineties Yankees. Um, and maybe, you know, you go back a little bit earlier than that as well, but um, it's going to be, you know, interesting to see if that, that holds up. I, I don't think they're, you know, I think they're still working through some bullpen problems and, and they are going to have to sort that stuff out. Um, and they, are, are they, you know, are the Braves going to, I, the Braves are right there too, so I want to see if the you know how the Braves match up with that. Um, I think I think that's interesting. I think the rise of the Orioles is really interesting too. Um, they kind of became that really awesome team to root for last year. A lot of young kids, their fans have been through a lot of problems um, and a lot of tough seasons in in recent times. Now you have the sale of the team, 
Um, they're real exciting. Uh, you know, definitely, I think a World Series contender. That's that's great too. Um, how are all these moves that the Yankees made? How are they going to work out? That's something I'm looking forward as well. Um, and then the Diamondbacks. I mean, you think about that. You know, last year was they only had 84 wins, um, but that that was a team loaded with young talent. Um, so do they take that next next step like the Orioles do, or you know, did they just happen to catch lightning in a bottle there? Um, you know, that that's at the top of the um, at the league. Uh, I'm interested too, and I know you're a Tigers fan. We had talked about that. I think they have some uh, some good, young, exciting players too, and um, I, I think it'll be them and, and Minnesota, you know, for the for the Central. But um, not too uh, Minnesota hasn't done too much, I don't think, in the off season to uh, to improve. So I think that's going to be a good race there. Okay, so maybe the most difficult question that I'll ask you in this whole interview: What about the Mets? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're in a season where they they want to learn about their young guys. Uh, I think once they lost out or missed out on Yamamoto and, you know, whether or not they went after Shohei seriously or not, um, it, once they've missed on those two, I thought it turned into they need to see what Brett Beatty is. They need to see what Francisco Alvarez is. Uh, Ronnie Mauricio is out for the year, um, so it'd be tough to gauge him. But Mark Vientos – uh, and I think they need to see how some of their prospects um, develop. I think they've done a good job in restocking their farm system. Uh, I think they're a top 10 farm system in baseball right now, but they're light on pitching prospects. So I think, I think you know, it's a lot about development with the Mets this year. But if they are in it, you know, around the all-star break, I think that they, you know, they may make some, may make a push there. Um, to, to make that playoff push. Because like you, you just mentioned, it doesn't take a whole lot with the expanded playoffs to get in there. The, the Diamondbacks got in there with 84 wins. Um, there was AL team too with 80 wins. So if the Mets are around 500, maybe they do add that extra pitcher. Um, I think their offense will be um, will be good. Just so many question marks in the rotation. Now I want to talk about the game. Obviously, you have study the game. You've had family members going all the way back to the 30s describing things that they saw. You've got a lot of background. You're not just plopping in here in the 1980s and becoming a baseball fan. So given all that background, what do you think about where the game is? And and I guess by the game, I'm going to just try to narrow it a little bit. Major League Baseball, so the major league teams and the minor league systems, where it is today and where you see it going down the road, and what you think about that? It's it's kind of been a little tough to see, um, and, and I recognize you know it's it's the baseball it's you know the sport changes from generation to generation it evolves or devolves as we may say here and there so you recognize that it's going to change I just kind of feel like there have been um, too many changes too rapidly. Um, and that the game today isn't the game it was 10 years ago, for better or worse. Some people like it more now. Some people may not. Um, I, I didn't really like the um, changes made to the game itself, the physical changes, the bigger bases, um, the uh, limiting the pickoffs over to first base. Uh, you know, to me, that, that changes the whole dynamic of the game. Um, that I love that pitcher – and base runner cat and mouse game. That was interesting to me. But 
it's not interesting maybe to other people, so I can understand why the game changes that way. Um, I think there's going to be even way more stolen base. I think we're going to be seeing silly stolen base total numbers. Um, last year was the new first time for that new rule, and you saw things like Ronald Acuna stealing 70 bases and all that stuff. I feel like that's a starting point. I, I, I think there's going to be guys that, you know, multiple guys with 70-plus stolen bases and, and some – insane numbers that may necessitate necessitate some switches back to the way it used to be. Um, you know, I kind of wish the game was a little bit more um, into policing itself the way it used to be. I'm big on respect, uh, respecting the history of the game. You know, when you're on the field, you're, you're in uniform, you're looking right, everybody looks uniform. Um, you know, the bat blips and the excitement I get from the big games, I'm just – tired of the bat flipping in the fourth inning of, uh, you know, somebody gets a solo homer and they're parading around like they won game seven. Um, that kind of stuff turns me off. But, you know, if it excites somebody else, it excites somebody else. Um, so it's it's in a transitionary period. I'm not always so happy with everything, but I, it's still the greatest game in the world. We still sit there and enjoy it. We still love it. Um, you know, I do like the fact that there is, are more stolen bases. There are more bunting, uh, is more bunting. Um, one of the things that bugs me is the, the catching situation. The catcher's down on one knee. Um, the dropping of the target, it just, it's distracting uh, to me. I, and again, the pitchers don't really seem to speak out against it. So I haven't, you know, they have a better, uh, more informed opinion than I do. I'm actually just for spitballing. I interviewed J.D. Klosser, a former Rockies catcher. He's the director of catching for the entire Braves organization right now. So we had a great mm. conversation about that. And I asked him flat out, you know, why do, why do you do all that? And, and we had a good talk about it. So I, I respect his opinion on that. He's obviously more informed than me, but still tough to watch, when, especially when it's the Mets. And, you know, there's a guy on third and the catcher's on the one knee and you're sitting there going – anything in the dirt and this is going to be a problem and then it is and of course you know you sit there and you stomp your feet yes i i agree completely on that one it, it's it's mind-boggling to me how many times you give up bases and or runs and not only the ball in the dirt that's the obvious one but sometimes when a guy elevates a fastball and it's higher than the catcher anticipated it's impossible for him to get off of that knee and catch that pitch sometimes so, you know, and I don't know, I, it's always bothered me that you can steal a strike. I mean, the umpires, the strike zone is well before the catcher ever catches the ball. Uh, but, you know, I guess that's just the way it is. So kind of piggybacking on that, and, and we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up this way. If you, not even the commissioner, you just got carte blanche authority to change something. It could be to remove a rule in place to put a rule in place that isn't there, or to change something, add or subtract, that has nothing to do with the rules, what would it be? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of something that I haven't talked about already. Um, let's see. Well, I, I think I'd like them, because I, I think they're going in this direction. I, I'd like to see them get to 32 teams, you know, get that ex those last two. I know they're going to expand. Anyway, so do it. I mean, I get the idea that that would water down the league a little further, but I'd like to see them get to the 32 teams. Um, 
two four-team leagues, American League and National League, standardize the playoffs and just leave it. Uh, I just don't, you know, the changing of things every so often um, or, or as often as they change things is tough to deal with. But just, you know, let's get that structure in place. I think that's where they're heading and let's go there. Uh, and as I was saying that, I thought of one other team. In the All-Star game, the players need to go back to wearing their team uniforms rather than some, you know, the nonsense uh, uniforms that, that they go, that, that they've been doing the past couple of years. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Rocco, this has been thoroughly enjoyable. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Mr. Dewey. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, I absolutely love listening to your podcast and your thoughts. So uh, it's been an honor talking baseball with you. Thanks, Rocco. I had such a great time doing that interview, and I trust that you had a great time listening to it. You can hear Rocco's love and passion for the game as he speaks about it. I only wish you could also see his face. It lit up while he was talking baseball. And even though you're limited only to hearing and not seeing Rocco, I'm confident that if you are a baseball fan, you were blessed by hearing him talk about the greatest game on the planet. I'll go even a step further. I'm confident listening to Rocco will make a baseball fan out of many, even Chalk Knox. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for listening.